0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com weeklytech. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Carl Truman, a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. And we talk about his latest book, The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self. Dr. Truman earned his M.A. in classics from the University of Cambridge and a Ph.D. in church history at the University of Aberdeen. He's the author or editor of over a dozen books, and he's an esteemed church historian who previously served as the William E. Simon Fellow in religion and public life at Princeton University. Well, Dr. Truman, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to write this book, The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self as a Church Historian?
0: Yeah, my my background, long time ago, I was a classicist as an undergraduate at the University of Cambridge in the UK, went on to study Reformation history, particularly Reformation thought at postgraduate level, and then I spent many years teaching at two universities in the UK and then at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, primarily teaching church history, and my academic focus was very much on 16th, 17th century kind of themes. John Owen, the English Puritan, was a particular interest at one point. The book we're talking about today, of course, has little or nothing to do with anything I'm actually competent to comment on. Uh, it the the narrative begins in the 18th century, where really I'm only competent to speak up to the 17th century, and comes up to the present day, and and deals almost exclusively with secular thinkers and secular thought. And the reason for that is there, there are a number of reasons: some personal, some some more generic. Personally, I would reached a point in my career a few years ago when I was Wanting to do something else, I'd done pretty much everything I wanted to do on the Reformation, was looking for another challenge. Uh, it was then that I was approached by Justin Taylor of Crossway and Rodrea of the American Conservative, asking if I would be interested in writing a short introduction to the thought of Philip Reef. I started reading Reef then in order to get some kind of idea of what that would entail and became convinced that a more interesting project would actually be using some of Reef's ideas to think about the state of culture today. And this was around about the time that uh, Obergefell v. Hodges was being decided by the Supreme Court, the issue of gay marriage, and transgenderism was exploding onto the the national, if not international, scene. And I i'm also a christian at the time i was not just a professor i was also a pastor and i i became convinced that there was a place for somebody to try to explain the sexual revolution in a way that would allow people particularly christian people but not exclusively christian people to think about the sexual revolution more holistically and to see it as as part of an ongoing narrative in the west and this book, which was uh, researched primarily on a James Madison fellowship at Princeton University in 2017, 2018, is is the fruit of all that.
1: Well, I really appreciate the book. I think it's been a really helpful kind of introduction to a lot of these big thinkers, but also the history of the sexual revolution and kind of what brought us to that point. Because I think it's easy as Christians to kind of trace back a lot of the rejections of the traditional sexual morality back to the sexual revolution, back to the 1960s, and not see it as part of a larger movement, as you talk about uh, throughout the book. Because reality is our culture didn't just wake up one morning and decide to reject kind of traditional morality that's undergirded civilization for Melinda. This is a long project. Can you walk us through maybe kind of a really high level brief uh, introduction to some of that history and how these debates kind of are tied to the larger revolution?
0: Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, what you've said is absolutely correct, that the, like all historical phenomena, the sexual revolution didn't cause itself. It arose out of a set of cultural, social conditions uh, that were already in place. Uh, when you think about gay marriage or transgenderism, for those ideas to be acceptable and plausible in society, a whole host of other ideas have already got to have been given authority, become plausible, become accepted by that society. So the story in my book is, how do the ideas that make the sexual revolution a plausible, even a desirable thing, how do they emerge in the West? And I... I, I divide the story in some ways into, into a series of, of, of manageable sections. The first thing I think that needs to happen is that what goes on inside your head, your feelings or your desires, need to be given fundamental authority in terms of who you are. Again, if you think about transgenderism, what is a transgender person saying when they say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body? They're saying, I have the physiology of a man, but inside, I feel like a woman, and, and that's the most important thing about me. So the first part of the story is, where does this focus on, on the inner life, on inner feelings come? And you, know, you could go way back in history if you wanted to trace it out from its absolute origins. But I start with Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the Romantics, uh, the 18th and early 19th century. They're the ones who, who popularize the notion that that voice of nature inside you, is the really important thing that determines your identity. Secondly, again, when you think about transgenderism, uh, you have to have a situation where uh, who you are is malleable, that, that you're able to, if you like, overcome what you are by nature, that human nature itself has to be malleable, transformable. In the 19th century, I think what happens is the idea of human nature as an established, secure, stable thing with a moral structure is demolished. And it's demolished in numerous ways, but perhaps the the three most significant thinkers in this area are Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Charles Darwin. So I have a section looking at how each of them, in their different ways, demolished the idea of human nature as having a sort of fixed moral structure. Again, the sexual revolution, of course, doesn't just focus on inward desires. It prioritizes sexual desires as fundamental to identity. And that's where I think Freud comes in. Again, Freud is representative of uh, the movement of psychoanalysis as it goes from the 19th into 20th century. But he's undoubtedly uh, the most brilliant and the most influential in that school. And he's the man more than any other who establishes the fundamental nature of sexual desire for our identity. And then, of course, there's the question of, well, how does all this stuff become political? Uh, It's one thing to say that I'm determined by my inner desires, that that's who I am. It's another thing to say that society has to recognise that. And that's where we get to the question of how sexual desire becomes politicised. And to understand that, one really needs to go to the, the, the 1930s through to the 1950s, where we have this very interesting group of figures associated with what we call the Frankfurt School, who sort of fused together uh, Marxist politics and Freudian psychoanalysis in a way that makes the struggle for political liberation pretty much the same as the struggle for sexual liberation and that really lays the the groundwork the foundation for for what we have today now it's not a complete narrative that i give in this book i know this podcast has a particular interest in technology Uh, there's a whole technological story to be told alongside the intellectual one that i tell but the intellectual story is very very important
1: Yeah, and there's one person in particular that you highlight throughout the book that I really kind of gravitated towards, which is Charles Taylor and a lot of his thoughts on the expressive self. I know many times throughout the book you kind of reference his sources of the self, the making of modern identity, and for – for listeners who might not be very familiar with Taylor and his works, can you give an overview of kind of Charles Taylor and why this view of his view of uh, the expressive self really helps to connect a lot of these things with the wider politics of society?
0: Sure. Taylor is is one of those enviably polymathic people. He's been a politician. He's a political philosopher. He's a straight down the line philosopher. He's a scholar of the German uh, philosopher Hegel. He's a historian. So he's a he's a polymathic figure. What I found him particularly useful, I think, was on two fronts. One, Taylor identifies, correctly identifies, I think, romanticism. As the key move in Western society, where inner feelings become constitutive of who we are. And he sees that as leading to the formation of a particular notion of the self. He calls this the expressive individual. Essentially, what he means by that is the self comes to be thought of as that which we feel inside, and the self manifests itself when it's able to behave outwardly in accordance with those inner desires. And that's where we get the language of authenticity. When you think today in society, we often use the language of authenticity when we're talking about people. Uh, Good example provided by Bruce, now Caitlin Jenner, in his uh, interview with Diane Sawyer, when he was talking about transitioning. And he made the point that, you know, uh, uh, finally, I'm going to be able to be who I always have been, essentially saying, finally, I can be authentic. Finally, I'm not going to be living a lie anymore. Now, you don't have to be a transgender person, I I think, to identify with that notion that I want to be outwardly, that which I feel to be inwardly. So that was one of Taylor's insights. Uh, Second one uh, is his Notion of what what he calls the social imaginary, and I found this extremely helpful. The social imaginary points to the fact that most of us, in fact, all of us, don't relate to the world around us in terms of always thinking back to first principles. Life is life is not a syllogism. I, I don't get up from my chair and think, okay, where do I need to exit the room from. Oh, there's a door over there. I'll go through the door. I get up, i instinctively leave through the door. Uh, the social imaginary gets to the idea that that's how we think about an awful lot of things. It's how we think about morality. We tend to pick up the intuitions of the world around us, internalise them and make a, them our own. So we don't think always in terms of first principles when we think about morality. good example might be provided by the, the gay marriage issue. Most people have not come to find gay marriage acceptable by reading heavy tomes of sexual ethics or sociology, sociological ethics. Most people have gay friends or have seen attractive images of gay couples on things like uh, Will of the Sitcom, Will and Grace. It's not that they've been convinced by argument. It's that their intuitions have been shaped by broader Cultural patterns. And I, th- I found that very helpful in, in approaching this, this notion of the modern self. It's not that we get up one morning and decide, let's be expressive individuals. The very air we breathe shapes, tilts, bends our intuitions towards that result.
1: Yeah, I know throughout the book you also speak to the inherent instability of kind of this broader project of the sexual revolution. Why do you think it's unstable and where do you see some of these confusions playing out in today's culture and today's debates?
0: Well, I think you need to set that – the sexual revolution then against the more – much sort of broader background. I think what we see in modernity is – Uh, an attempt to organise society, to justify society without recourse to any reference to uh, the transcendent or the sacred. Uh, Nietzsche's the man who calls the bluff on this in the 19th century when he has his madman in his book, The Gay Science, run into the town square and confront the polite Enlightenment atheists and say to them, you've killed God and therefore you need to accept the role of God yourselves. You need to step up to the plate. You need to make your own reality. That's a great idea on paper. In practice, of course, it means that what reality is, is always going to be contested. It's always going to involve a struggle between power groups and interest groups. And there's going to be nothing beyond the current state of things to which we can appeal to justify where we stand. And that, I think, is very much the situation we're, we're in today. And we see that manifesting itself in, in a number of ways, in a number of sort of almost contradictory ways. Uh, when Pete Buttigieg was standing for uh, the candidacy, uh, for the, uh, for to be Democratic candidate for the pre- last presidential election, it was very interesting to read some of the reaction in the, in the gay and the queer press to his candidacy, that he was regarded as far too conventional. Here he is, he's married to another guy, but he's he's just sort of your archetypal middle-class, respectable gay guy. The real radicals in the sexual revolution, they see that as a capitulation, really, to, to the old ways. You're just accommodating yourself to the old ways. Real revolution requires an overthrow of that kind of thing. Marriage, if you like, is far too respectable in any form. So that would be an example of where, yeah, the sexual revolution uh, doesn't have any authority to which it appeals. It ultimately comes down to competition among lobby groups sharing disparate visions of of what sexual morality and social organization should look like.
1: I know, obviously, on this podcast, we talk a lot about technology and ethics. And earlier you had mentioned kind of the role of technology and someone even needing to do kind of a history on the way that technology has shaped and kind of formed the modern conscience. But what role do you see in your research? Of Did you see modern technology playing in this human search for identity? And do you see expressive individuals playing itself out in other areas of ethics like technology or even the current debates over digital privacy?
0: Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I, I, I think that uh, I'd go. I'd go back to the Communist Manifesto, 1848, on this question. Say, so, you know, one of the interesting things there that Marx and Engels say is that as the means of production are increasingly automated, the difference between Male and female between men and women will diminish now uh, Marx and Engels are thinking primarily in terms of sheer physical strength you know once factories have machines uh, you don't need men wielding pickaxes and sledgehammers et etc cetera, etc cetera. So once physical strength becomes less important, women will be able to do the same work in the workplace they'll be able to occupy the same position relative to the means of production but that's an interesting point that has really developed right the way through to the present day where we we see, yeah, there is a real connection between technology and the way we construe the relationship between the sexes. One obvious example from the 60s would be the the pill. The pill revolutionized the nature of, uh, of sexual relations between men and women. Transgenderism is a more extreme example. Why has transgenderism caught the imagination? Well... Technology makes it plausible. It's it's now a plausible thing to do. We we can manipulate our bodies. We can manipulate our hormones. So somebody blurring the boundary between the sexes, separating sex from gender, is operating in a world that is uh, able to make those things at least plausible, if not always particularly plausible. Practical, the way we engage typically now. Uh, if you were to look at my book and say Truman, you know, could you summarize your book in in a single sentence? I might say, yeah, my book is all about the the decreasing importance of the body, the physical body, to selfhood. Think about online media. You know, you can't see my face. You know, I I, I promise you that I have a full head of hair, a perfect set of teeth, and frequently get mistaken for Tom Cruise when I walk down the streets of Grove City. You have no idea. I mean, you you have a pretty good idea that I'm not telling the truth, but I I can invent myself online, in my online relationships, in a way that I could never have done before. So technology also facilitates it. It opens up a whole uh, panoply of identities for me that I could never have had or only had in a very limited sense before.
1: Yeah, I think that kind of emphasis on the disembodiment in the digital age is something that I hope there's more work to come. I think that's a really important topic when we're talking about technology and ethics and morality is that emphasis on the embodiment of the technological age. Forgive me to quote yourself back to you, uh, but you say in the book, every age has its darkness And its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and to respond appropriately to them. I really resonated with that quote early on in the introduction, and I think that it adequately sums up kind of the tone and the approach that you take throughout the book when engaging a lot of these difficult and complex issues. I want to ask you, what are some of the – what's some advice that you would give to the church in navigating a lot of these challenging times? And why was it important for you to, throughout the book to take a careful and kind of at times dispassionate approach to a lot of the figures and kind of the ethical systems and worldviews that you laid out?
0: Yeah, That's a very rich question and numerous – facets to any any adequate answer to that. Uh, I would comment just in general, I've been very influenced Really, my year at Princeton, watching Robbie George and his inner circle in action was great influence on me because what struck me was that whenever there was bad news, and there was usually bad news coming out in the national media, whenever we had coffee on a Tuesday, Robbie's response was never, oh, tempera, oh, mores, isn't it awful? His response was always, okay, so how are we going to respond to this? What are we going to do? You know, this is the hand we've been dealt. How are we going to how are we going to play this hand? And that struck me as a as a really healthy antidote to that temptation that Christians have to to lament. And a number of people have said, you know, you've said in the book it's not a lamentation. Are you saying lamentations wrong? Absolutely not. I'm just saying lamentation is merely part of what Christians are to do in this fallen world. Certainly, we're not to be smug and complacent and and celebrate the fallenness of this world. On the other hand, we're not to allow ourselves to be crippled by lamentation so that we never actually get on with doing the tasks that the Lord has given us to do. So that's a sort of general uh, preamble. In terms of what the church should do, I think first and foremost, in times, particularly in times when everything seems to be, yeah you know, we seem to be losing every hand. I think the important thing to do is to to keep hold of the promises, to remember that the promises to the church, the promise isn't to the United States, it's not to the United Kingdom, it's not to my denomination, it's not to the Southern Baptists, promises to the church, and the church is going to win. It may not be your church that wins, it may not be my church that wins, but the church is going to win. And I think that helps uh, provide a certain amount of stability to us as Christians, that if we can keep hold of that eschatological vision that, yes, everything's going to be okay in the end, that doesn't make us naive optimists, but it gives us true, solid hope. And I think Christians, uh, I'm very influenced by uh, by, uh, Rod Dreher on this, that Christians are not to be optimists, we're to be hopeful people, people of hope. Secondly I think it's very important that we understand in this in this era where there's so much information coming from from all over the place it's very important that we do deal fairly with those people we are up against we're very uh, try to be as accurate as we can about their views now we all fail in this at some time you know there's nobody can do this perfectly all the time but we have a generation of young people rising and if we misrepresent the kind of issues that they're facing to them, and if we simply answer straw men, then we're not going to persuade them. So I think it's important to to keep the temperature, keep the rhetoric down, and to think through things clearly. Thirdly, uh, I've used this phrase before, and uh, you know, please don't switch off the podcast uh, now. I, I have to explain it. I think we need to realise the Bible is not enough. What do I mean by that? Well. I'm an Orthodox Presbyterian minister. Clearly, I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. But I think what I've noticed in the young people that I teach at Grove City College is many of them love Jesus. They love the Bible. The Bible is their authority. But sometimes they wonder why the Bible says things. And simply saying to them, homosexuality is wrong, they might come back and say, yeah, I agree. That's what the Bible teaches. But does the Bible teach that simply because God wants people to be unhappy? I think that what we need to do is think about setting that kind of teaching, or or I would say supporting it with subsidiary arguments based on nature, based on the body, based on human flourishing. Not that those arguments supplant scriptural authority, but if I put it this way, they help younger people see scripture as, as more plausible if I could put it that way. And I think that that's one of the things that the church needs to do. We can no longer rely on the world around us to shape their moral intuitions in a broadly correct way. That's done. That's done. So we need to think much more proactively about how we as a church can shape those intuitions.
1: Yeah, and I think that last point is especially really helpful is we're starting to see kind of a resurgence in natural law thinking and natural law ethics, especially in Protestant traditions, of not seeing it just as some kind of cultural apologetic but as a way to help undergird and help us to believe in Not the validity of Scripture because we do believe it's valid because it is the Word of God, but it helps us to understand why things are the way they are, why the natural order and the created order is the way it is, and I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. As we close out our time today, if folks are kind of new to this subject or they're new to a lot of these concepts and want to dig a little bit deeper, outside of your book, are there one or two books that you might recommend folks to pick up that would be kind of good introductions or a next step in a lot of these questions?
0: Yeah, I think uh, on Charles Taylor, and I do think Charles Taylor is, is, is a very useful person for helping you to think about culture. I would recommend his little book, The Ethics of Authenticity it's, uh, for Charles Taylor, it's it's mercifully concise. It's a set of lectures that he gave. It's very clear, very concise, very accessible. The Ethics of Authenticity. I think it's also published as The Malaise of Modernity. One of those titles is the British title. One is the American title. Um, I would also recommend uh, James K.A. Smith's How Not to Be Secular, which is his Guide to Taylor's much bigger work, A Secular Age. That helps, I think. And it's got a nice glossary at the end. That helps introduce some of Taylor's key concepts. So I would certainly uh, recommend those works. On the broader front, I would say maybe not books so much as subscribe to a couple of good web pages. Public discourse, where Andrew Walker, who was at the ERLC and is one of the pioneers of natural law in Protestantism, uh, Andrew Walker's on the editorial board there, they produce an article every day, not always from a distinctively Christian position. They have Jewish writers and they have some secular writers as well. They they produce sort of 1,500-word essays on the big issues of the day from a thoughtful perspective. So I think uh, go to public discourse, Put your email in there, and every morning, around about five past seven, you will get delivered to your inbox uh, an excellent thought provoking article that will help you think more constructively about the culture around.
1: Yeah, I definitely recommend checking out Public Discourse and the work that Dr. Walker does. He's actually one of my professors at Southern Seminary in the Ph.D. in Ethics Program, Um, so I definitely highly recommend. And he actually has a new book coming out here uh, later this year in May on religious liberty and getting into a lot of these uh, similar type of arguments from the lens of religious liberty. So I highly recommend listeners to grab that. Dr. Truman, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech and for this rich discussion we've been able to have. I highly recommend listeners grabbing a copy of your new book, uh, which we'll link to along with the other recommended resources that you mentioned in the show notes. So just thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks
0: for having me on.
1: Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Truman and learn more about his book as well as the books he recommended in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning, which is designed to help you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the top tech news. You can sign up at jasonfactorcom slash Weekly Tech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.